Thursdays at noon, but instead today it's Thursday at 1 o'clock. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and start. Uh, and if you got your Bible, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 17 to 21, we're going to be at. So we're going to cover a lot more ground today, uh, as my plan. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 through 21, we're going to read that and then we're going to pray, and then we'll go ahead and start. So here's what we have. And if you call on him as father, as who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So there's a lot there, so we're going to try to cover all of it, and we're going to pray, and then we'll start. God, we thank you uh, for this beautiful day, uh, for the chance to, uh, to hear your word. We thank you for your words you've given to us. Uh, God, I ask that you would open our hearts and open our ears to, uh, to understand what you've given to us. Um, Help us to treasure you more. Help us to be more obedient to you. We ask that you would um, convict us of our sin and where we fall short. And I ask that you would continue to uh, walk with us and guide us and that you would uh, continue to point us to your son. And in his name we pray. Amen. All right, if you've ever walked into a, uh, a Christian bookstore or even sometimes now just like a regular uh, shop in Marion or in the area, uh, you'll see uh, T-shirts and mugs and magnets and journals with Bible verses on them. It's very common how to do that. And uh, after working at Lifeway for a long time, probably the most common verse I've ever, I've ever seen on uh, some kind of uh, material like that is Jeremiah 29, 11. It's probably the most popular verse. And if you don't know it, it says this. Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. Uh, it's a great verse, uh, regardless of how you uh, understand it. Um, but what makes it even greater is the context that's around the verse. Uh, the best part is why God said that, what was happening, what was going on in, in the time that he said that to the Israelites. So I want to give you as quick as I can a brief little context overview of why God said that and why that's relevant to what we're talking about today. Um, so you have Jeremiah 29. Uh, the book of Jeremiah, first of all, the prophet. Um, God sent Jeremiah to his people of Israel who were rebellious. Uh, according to chapter 2, they're committing uh, primarily two great sins, is what God says. Uh, they were forsaking the fountain of living water, so they were forsaking God. And the second thing they're doing was they are, it says, digging broken cisterns, which can hold no water. So idolatry is the idea, right? We would forsake God and we'd go to our own idea of God. And God used the imagery of broken cisterns, so you can dig the well as deep as you want, but it's going to leak, it's going to crack, it's going to fail. And so it's basically after idolatry, right? Uh, so God sends Jeremiah in, he steps onto the scene. Uh, to turn them back from idols, to call them to repent, to forsake their false prophets, and to turn back to God. And just like uh, we do, uh, we reject that. Uh, the Israelites did not do that, unfortunately. Uh, they rejected Jeremiah a lot. Uh, he was called the weeping prophet for reason, because he was so tearful and sad and hurt. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, one of the temple priests heard Jeremiah speak of God's coming wrath. So he actually beat up Jeremiah and threw him in prison. It's in chapter 20. And then in his anger, Jeremiah asked God, why did you do this to me? You've tricked me to do this. I'm angry. And then in Jeremiah chapter 25, God tells his people that they'll be sent into Babylon captivity for 70 years. 
So you have the context of Jeremiah 29, 11 being a prophet who's going to rebellious people who reject him, and now his next message is, you keep rejecting me, well, God's going to reject you and send you to exile for 70 years. Um, and that's easily multiple generations of families, which we know that. So seven years is a long time uh, to be in exile. So now in Jeremiah 29, uh, God speaks through Jeremiah to send a letter to his people in captivity. And the letter says a couple things. It says, while, while you're in exile, um, eat, live, uh, work, get a job, sleep, have a family, be a regular person. And in verse 7, he says to seek the welfare of the city and to pray for God to work. And then a few verses later, he warns them not to listen to any other false prophets. Hey, don't listen to them. I did not send them. And then the next verse that God says is Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 and 11, which says, For thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are completed, I will visit you, I will fulfill my promise to you, and bring you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. So 1 Peter is kind of like a letter to people in exile. It's kind of like what Jeremiah, said, what God was sent to the Israelites. Christians are in exile is what 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says. Uh, it's to us who are in exile, who are not um, in our homeland, and God, but God has sent us here. So while we're here, God gives us 1 Peter as kind of ground rules of what to do and why we're here and what to be looking for. Um, so more specifically, the things we're going to cover um, is during our exile, we are to lovingly fear God by adoring the death of Jesus and to, uh, for the purpose of glorifying God. So that's kind of my, my little outline I'm going to hit, is we are to lovingly fear God by adoring the death of Jesus or treasuring the death of Jesus. I think that's a good word to use. Uh, for the purpose of glorifying God now and forever. Uh, so first I want to take us to uh, the first thing that Peter brings up. So this section is about our living as a Christian in exile, uh, how we're to live and to act. In verse 17 he says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially. Um, probably one of the most well-known movies that came out over the last 10 years, it actually came out almost 10 years ago exactly, which seems like a long time, uh, is a movie called Taken. So the guy named Liam Neeson, he's kind of the main character. And if you've not seen it, the plot of the movie is very, very simple. Uh, Liam Neeson plays a man named Brian. Uh, he's a former government agent who just left the force, and he was one of their best operatives, right? Uh, he left his position actually to spend more time with his daughter because his marriage just went bankrupt. So he said, hey, I got to see my daughter. So he left his position uh, to be with his daughter. Uh, and what happens is his daughter takes a foreign trip to a different country. She gets abducted. Uh, Liam Neeson has all these contacts because he used to be a foreign agent, so he gets on a plane, flies down to the, uh, the country where she was at, finds one clue, tracks down the people, beats them all up, kills them all, and sees the daughter, happy ever after. Very simple story, very, very uh, goofy. Uh, now, it, if you imagine being uh, this girl or just being a son of this character that Liam Neeson played, Brian, um, you know that he dearly loves you because he left his job to spend time with you. He specifically left his job uh, to spend time with you in the movie, it's very clear that he loves his daughter. He is very great to have her. He pursues her. He saves her. Um, but I think if he was my dad, I would know he loves me, but I would be very, very scared to never come home late on curfew. I know that if I came home, my dad, who's government agent, would take care of me. Or if he ever caught me with drugs, he would make sure I, I got a whipping. Or if I ever got in trouble, I, I would tremble. So I would, I, I love him. I love my father. I love my dad. Uh, but also, I'd be... I'd be scared because he used to hunt down terrorists for a living, so he knows what he's doing. So in verse 17, uh, Peter says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially. Um, I think Peter's using 
he's kind of using two of those ideas. He's saying, yes, God's your father. So yes, you love him. He's good and he loves you and your, and your son. But he also judges. He's also your judge. I think Peter's giving us the weight of both. Um, so if you're a Christian, if you've been born again, uh, you've been adopted into God's household, God's now your father. And we see that in the first part of 1 Peter. So God loves you dearly. He sent his son to rescue us. So that's good. That's great. He loves us. Uh, but Peter's point is also that God is also a judge. So he dearly loves us, but he's a good judge. I think we forget what a good judge is. Um, I've never had to pay a felony charge or go to court for anything terrible, which is good. I think a speeding ticket one time. Uh, but if I it, it, imagine you being a criminal and you break the law. You, I don't know, you steal, you rob a store, you murder or something. And you go to the court, and they say, hey, this judge is really, really good. What are you going to do? You're going to tremble. I don't want a good judge. I want a really bad judge. You're hoping to get a crooked, messed up judge, but instead, it's a good judge. He's really thorough. He's going to crack down evil. And it causes you to tremble. And I think we should see God, yes, as our Father, who dearly loves you, but it should cause us to worship Him and to know that He's also a judge who hates sin. Yes, He's a good Father. I cannot express that enough. But he's also a judge, Peter says, who will judge impartially. God isn't, um, he doesn't judge unfairly. He judges rightly and perfectly because he's a good judge. Um, so God is gracious, but he's not lenient. He's loving, but he's not, he's not fluffy, right? He's not, a, he's not just a fluff ball. Uh, so do you love your gracious father? And if you're a Christian, you should love him. I love him dearly. Uh, he loves you so much that he sent his son to rescue you. Uh, but do you also fear the almighty judge? And if you're a Christian, you should fear that in the sense that he is a judge. And he will do well, and he will take care of what needs to be done. So in order to understand that, I think Peter's giving us both to love and fear God. And it's a good kind of fear, which we'll clarify in a second. So look at the second part of verse 17. Who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So knowing that God's a father and a judge, conduct yourselves with fear during your time of exile. So during your time on earth, conduct yourselves with fear. Now with fear, I don't mean this, the fear of spiders or the fear my wife has of seeing a fly in the house. I don't mean that. What I mean is the fear of uh, a godly good fear. Um, kind of the idea of uh, the fear of offending someone you love. So I'm not scared of God. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm... Don't kill me because you're the boogeyman. Nothing like that. It's a godly respect. It's a, it's a fear. I don't want to offend you because I love you so much. I do not want to trespass. I don't want to sin against you. Uh, not because he'll torture me or hurt me, anything like that, uh, but because I'm afraid of displeasing the one I love. So sin displeases God uh, from our small lives to our thoughts of one another. Um, he hates it, and that's why he judged his son in our place for it. So remember that during our time as a Christian on earth, we're called not to just love our Father, but to also fear that He is Almighty. And I think that's a good balance to keep. I think if you go too far one direction, you can have some bad theology there. Uh, too far one direction, you're scared to ever talk to God because He's angry with you all the time. Too far the other direction, you can sin all you want because you have license to sin. But I think if you keep the tension, I think we'll live our lives under God in a loving, in a loving fashion and also understand that we're called to be holy. Uh, there's a good verse in Romans chapter 11 that really illustrates it well that I'll end this section with. Uh, Paul says this, Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So God is, he is good, he is kind, he loves sinners, he loves you. If you're a Christian, he has set his love on you, but he's also the same God who sent people to hell. So he is big, he's mighty, he's fearful. But we should love him and fear him, I think. We should lovingly fear God and hold that tension. 
I think that's good. I think we're called to do that, according to 1 Peter. So connect yourselves with fear during the time of exile, but a loving fear of God. And, and now Peter, what he's going to do next is point us to the death of Jesus. So I think that this will help us to understand why we should fear God, why we should love God, is by looking at what Christ did and who he is. Um, in the New York Times, there's an article written a couple years ago uh, about how to raise your children, and I'll quote it to you, the article title, How to Raise Moral Children. So how to have a kid that's not a little punk, I guess is the idea. How to raise a kid who's not um, a scallywag. Uh, and how to raise them, what to do. And it tells us uh, that by, by the age of two, um, kids begin to show more behavior and their emotions. They start to be more selfish. We call them the terrible twos for a reason, right? And the journalist of the article, he asked this question. Is it because some children are simply good-natured or not? So he thinks maybe some kids are just really rotten, some are just not as rotten, maybe some have better parents, maybe some have worse parents. And he goes on to say the best way to raise moral children uh, is this. Praise their behavior, uh, remember the importance of discipline, so don't say, hey, that's a bad thing you did, say, or don't say you're bad, say that act was bad. So don't hurt the child, hurt their act, that's the idea. Um, discipline your children and show compassion, so... Uh, by the parents. So if the parents model compassion, the kids will be more compassionate, they'll be more loving. Hey, that's how you be nice, that's how you share. So if you model that, um, if you praise their behavior, and if you discipline them, we'll have moral children. That's, that's what this article in the New York Times says. Um, I'm not against those things at all. I think we should do those things. I think good parenting involves some of those things. You shouldn't tell your son you hate them. You should, you, you should spank your children, um, and you should model good behavior. Uh, but the reason why I think this is flawed is we need to remember that outside actions don't really change the inward problem, right? We can, we can try all day to form the outside, but it doesn't happen. Uh, I don't have any flowers or a garden in my house, but we do have weeds outside of our house um, in the grass. And if I want to make them pretty, a very bad idea would be, would be to staple rose petals to the weeds. And anyway, hey, at least they look a lot better. Well, it may look better, but it's still a weed. It's still going to grow and rot and die and ruin everything. Um, so I think kind of sculpting the outward doesn't really do anything to the inward. It makes it look prettier, uh, but the inward's still dead. It's still, it's still a weed. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, uh, Peter actually re reminds us, unfortunately, of our roots, of who we are, who we used to be, and what we came from. So here's what he says. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So the bad news is, is that we have forefathers. Our roots go back, right? Some people have roots who... Their families were involved in wars, uh, they lived in different countries, they were athletes, they were criminals, maybe they were a doctor, a farmer, etc. Uh, but all of us ultimately have one humanity that goes back to the one bloodline, which is Adam. All of us trace back to one person and one wife, and that's Adam and Eve, right? All of humanity finds their beginnings in Adam. Uh, we started there. Uh, he was created in God's image perfectly. Uh, he chose to sin and reject God's rule. And now all humanity has taken a downward spiral, and that's why we see so many awful things, right? Uh, Romans 8 says that God subjected the world to futility. So Adam rebelled, and God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fire back. That was God's judgment. So the, the good judge struck back. Uh, so we see the seriousness of sin. So the, think about how horrible we see the world. There's, there's death, there's tragedy, there's suffering, there's evil. It's kind of like a visual picture of how extreme sin is to God. It's... God hates sin so much, it's, cancer's that bad, right? Death is that bad, God. Sin is that serious to God. It's not just like a, it, it's not a boo-boo, it's serious, right? So because of Adam's sin, we're now imputed, or a different word is credited or counted, with Adam's shame and sin and guilt. So 
If you're a Christian, you've probably heard this before. It's called the doctrine of original sin. In a very simple way, it means we're born with a sinful nature. Uh, we desire to sin both willingly and because it's, it's ingrained within us. Um, and something that's interesting is uh, a lot of people object to this. This is not a very popular thing to like. Uh, here's a, a very simple objection. Uh, it's not fair. I didn't even commit this sin. How come I should suffer from it? Right? So Adam's sin, why is it my fault? Because Romans chapter 5 says, you, we've all sinned. Well, I didn't, you know, maybe I'm not as bad as Adam was. Or if I was in the garden, I wouldn't have blew it. Right? I think a helpful illustration is uh, if you know anything about sports that require teams. Uh, I just play basketball, so just think of basketball. If you have a point guard who slaps some guy's arm and commits a foul, he commits the foul, but who's it impact? Well, it impacts me and our, and our small forward and our whole team. Our whole team loses possession. Maybe they score a point, they get free throws, right? We lose a timeout, whatever. So he commits the foul, but since he's our rep representative, it affects us as well. So he's our representative for the whole team of humanity, if that, if that analogy, you can tie that back. So again, uh, it's in our nature, but we also sin by choice as well. Um, no one sins because they're forced to. You're not forced to lie. You're not forced to lust. You're not forced to steal, cheat. We want to do those things, right? Uh, John chapter 3 and Ephesians 2 and James 1 all teach us that uh, we reject God's goodness. We desire passion. Or our, we, we desire to sin. Our passion is to sin. And we do it all by our choice. So we're never made to sin. We want to. Um, and a kind of a, a silly way to put it, but if you think about it, it really is helpful, is the heart of the problem, the main part of the problem, the heart of the problem is the problem of our heart. So the heart of the problem of sin is our heart's the problem. That, that's what's wrong. Is it's, it's our inward nature. It's our character, uh, our desires, our nature. It's broken. It's corrupt. Um, the Bible actually said it's dead to God. So uh, stapling good deeds to the outside of a, a rotten weed, it won't do anything. It may look prettier, but it won't change what, what it actually is. Uh, so in verse 18, again, Peter reminds us that we were ransomed, uh, not with perishable things such as gold or silver. Uh, the word ransom, uh, kind of a simple way to understand it, means paid the price for redemption or pay the price in full to be set free. So it's a fully paid fine. Um, and it's not with perishable things such as gold or silver, as Peter says, and he goes on to explain what it is in the next verse. So we can staple rose petals all day to weeds and good needs to our sinful nature all day long. But that only kind of hides the roots. That doesn't take care of our problem. Uh, we, we need a heart change. We need a heart transplant, right? Um, nothing on earth can free us from our sin problem. That's what, Adam, that's what Peter's trying to say is it's inherited from your forefathers. It is ingrained in your blood. You are by nature sinful and rejecting God. Nothing can change that. It's nothing on earth. Nothing natural can change that, right? Uh, and I like how Peter uh, dismisses the things that we love. He just calls perishable things. So the things that I like like a new phone or a house or a car, he just says, they're all going to perish. So Peter, just, he's really attacking the things we like. He's saying, yeah, gold and silver is great, but it's all going to rot. It's all going to spoil. That's, that's not going to change your problem, right? He, he's the taxes right at our, our favorite desires. And what's cool is that if you've been following through 1 Peter, in verse 4, he says, our inheritance is imperishable. So there's a contrast there. What, what we're going to get is imperishable. What, what we have is perishable. So Peter's a good contrast of explaining what, what's going to save us can't be something that's going to perish. It has to be imperishable, right? So what is it? It has to be something that's supernatural, right? It can't be created. It has to be a creator. It has to be something outside creation. It has to be not natural, but outside of natural or supernatural, right? In verse 19, Peter continues. He, he, he gives us the answer. He says, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So it's good news. Uh, only one man can represent man, 
and he must be perfect. And not only perfect, but he has to be God, because if you think about it, only God can take the wrath of God and survive. So our Savior has to be fully man to stand in my place to be a man. He can't be a mutant like a half-man Hercules thing. He has to be fully man. He has to be fully God because only God can take God's wrath and pay the fine and survive, right? So Jesus is fully God. He's two 100%, right? He's not a mix. He's two 100% together, right? In the same, in the, in the same person. So his precious blood is costly, but saved us from, saved us from God's wrath. Um, and by turning from our sin and re- repenting and trusting in Christ, uh, God counts us reconciled. He resolves the, the heart of the problem, our heart. He changes our hearts, right? So in Christ, now we sit in, in a new bloodline. We're in Christ's bloodline. We stand in his bloodline. He's the second Adam, the Bible says. He's the new Adam. He's the new representative. So our old point guard blew it. This new point guard did perfect, right, if you, if you kind of use that. Uh, so we come to him through faith. So now in Christ's bloodline, uh, all of his work um, is counted to us. Our old heart is uprooted. We're given a new heart with new desires uh, that want to obey, that want to love our Father, that want to know Christ. So God uproots us from Adam and plants us in Christ. So how, how good news is that for us who sin by nature? God gives you a new nature. He gives you new desires. So now you want to do those things. And I think it's funny how the same people that object to well, it's not fair that I inherit Adam's nature. I didn't do anything wrong. We don't ever object to Jesus doing that either, right? So it's kind of the same idea. So Adam did everything. We get the guilt for it. But also, in the same way, Jesus was perfect and we get his credit. But no one objects to that, though. We, we love that second part. Give me the second part, but forget the first part, right? So it imputes both ways. So I think if you understand how Jesus imputes or counts you righteous because of his work, I think we'll understand that it's not really wrong for God to count us guilty be in Adam. I think we always hate the first one and only want the second one. But I'm glad the first one's true because now I can be counted in Christ. So Jesus earned all the work. We get credit for it. It's kind of like plagiarism, but it's in a righteous way. He did it all. We take credit for it, right? Uh, we may not like that God imputes it, um, but I'm glad that he does because it's unfair to count me as sinner as righteous. I'm glad that he's done that. And it's only by the precious blood of Christ, the costly blood, right? And to end this section, Peter takes us to uh, where this truth started. Um, he takes us to the beginning of it. If you look in verse 20, uh, he, was sa- he says, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the times for the sake of you. So what's really good is this wasn't like a plan B. Jesus sending wasn't like a last minute. Angels, come here. Got to have a huddle. What should we do? Right, I'll send my son. Good, yeah. It was nothing like that. It's neat to know that God was actually in control of even Adam's sinning. It wasn't out of God's plan. It was actually in God's plan. It was great to see how God is so over it. He can even be in charge when it looks like no one's in charge. When Adam blew it, God was kind of like, well, my son's coming. So it's good to see that this was foreknown. Jesus was the Lamb of God, uh, chosen before the foundation of the world. He was planned. It was initiated. It was all before we were here. Uh, and that makes, I think, Jesus' death more precious to us, knowing that it was planned before Adam even sinned. It wasn't like a last second, you know, if you miss your wife's birthday, last second, I'll buy her a new gift, she won't even know, I'll buy her today. But you bought it a long time ago in advance. Well, it's more precious that way. Like, you love it so much more because they thought about you before that, right? And same way with Christ, God thought about us way before, before the foundation of the world. He thought about us and said, I want my son to save sinners. That's such good news to us to know that God dearly loves and cares for his people. So Christian, again, you are dearly loved. I cannot if not emphasize that enough. Uh, this is God's love on display that Jesus 
takes the wrath that we deserve and credits his perfect life in his death to us. So we are counted as perfect and he is counted as a sinner on the cross. Uh, that's good news for us. Um, so the mount where Jesus was slain was planned before we were even here. So again, that's how we understand God's love for us. So uh, during our exile, uh, we've covered we're, we're to lovingly fear God. And to do that, I think if we treasure the death of Jesus, we will understand how to lovingly fear him more to see, wow, he really doesn't like sin at all. That's how much he killed his son for. Wow, he really does love me. He killed his son for me, right? And now Peter's going to point us to the purpose of all this. So what's the purpose of Jesus dying? What's the purpose of uh, loving my father? Why should I be in exile? What's the purpose of all that God is doing? He's going to point us to this. Um, I'm going to read you a quote. Um, I'm not give you the name. From a very popular, he's not super well-known, but he's becoming well-known now. He's a, a popular uh, Bible teacher. Um, he says he's a pastor, but I disagree with the wording pastor. Uh, he's on TV, he's on YouTube, he, I think he's on the radio as well. Um, he was interviewed on a, um, a broadcasting network uh, a couple years ago, I think it was last year. And they asked him some questions, and here's how he answered uh, the question, what does the cross mean, or what does Jesus' death mean to you, or how do you explain it? And here's what he says, it kind of, it's kind of long, so bear with me. But here's what he says. The cross is the revelation of my value. If I'm going to pay for something, I'm only going to pay for what something's worth. If something on earth that you pay for determines its value, how much did heaven pay and Christ pay to get us back? Heaven went bankrupt. When you see the price that heaven paid for you on the cross, your whole life will change. And there's no devil in hell who can shape the truth of who God says I am. And after this quote, after people are clapping, and I think someone's crying in the crowd, and thank you so much, Pastor. And um, I do want to affirm like a, uh, one, maybe two things in that. Um, if you see the cross, I think your whole life will change. I, I think it should. You should see, man, God, does, he, he really loves me. He killed his son for me. That, that's great. What a great God. Um, and I think that's kind of where it stops. I think that's kind of where I'm at with that. Um, I think secondly... Um, you can see that God will keep you. You know, the devil in hell can't change it. I, I, I agree with that. If you're in Christ, that can't be changed by Satan saying, stop. I, I agree with those things, but um, I want to uh, examine what he said. Um, he made the focus of the cross about me, right? I mean, the first line says, the cross is the revelation of my value. And I don't think that's why Jesus died to show me how, how, how much I'm worth it, because I don't think that's why Jesus did that. And I think Peter's going to explain that in a second. Um, he made the, the man the center or the objective or the main purpose. I think Jesus did die for you. That is correct. Uh, but it wasn't to show how much we're worth, but to show how good God is, to show God's worth, right? So yes, it shows that we're dearly loved. It shows that God is dearly worthy of everything we have, that he would send his precious blood of his son to us. And I think that's the point of the cross. Um, and we, we see that in the scriptures. Look at verse 21. Uh, here's what Peter says who through him, through Jesus, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So, so the, the reason is so that. So that's the reasoning. But maybe um, I'm going to do what Paul likes to do. Uh, I, will, I will object to my own teaching. Uh, if you read in verse 20, uh, Peter's ended the verse a different way. Uh, he says, He was formed before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Jesus came for me. I'm the purpose, right? It says for the sake of Kale, for the sake of you, right? Um, so the question is, did Jesus die for you? Yeah, of course he did. I never deny that. That would be a that'd be false teaching. Jesus definitely died for you. Um, he absolutely did. 
Um, all that he accomplished on earth was in your place, 100%. It was all for you. It was all to redeem you, to purchase you, to save you from God's wrath, to adopt you to his family, to cover your shame with his righteousness, to cleanse you from your sin. It was all done for that. But again, the cross was not to demonstrate our worth, but to show God's worth. It was not ultimately for us, it was ultimately for God to be shown as righteous and to be shown as beautiful and good and glorious, right? So through the life of Christ imputed or counted to us, uh, verse 21 says we are believers in God. So if you follow the logic of what Peter's saying, um, only in Christ can we go to God. There's, just, just, there's no other option, right? First uh, John says if you have the Son, you have the Father also. So anyone who doesn't have Christ doesn't have God. So Muslims have an invalid way. Buddhists have an invalid way. There's no other way but through Christ. So it's only Jesus could save us. Um, and again, not with perishable things, but only the blood of a God-man. Uh, he's the only way to God. There's no other way. And look at verse 21. Jesus died. And then it says that God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Um, so God raised Jesus from the dead. And I think that brings a lot of questions. Well, how about when Jesus said, I raised myself? How about this? Uh, I think we think about it that, that, that that's true at the same time. So it says here that God raised him from the dead. Well, who is God? Well, God is three persons, right? One God. Uh, and you can see this in this verse. You can argue that God here is speaking of the Father, as he usually does when it says God. And in Romans 8, it says the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And in John 10, Jesus says that he raised himself from the dead. So technically, the whole, the whole of God, if that, if that wording makes sense, raised Jesus from the dead. And that's a good to say, because that's true. And God, so the Father gave him glory to sit at the right hand, um, not as God, because Jesus already had the glory of God, but the God of man, the man had to have the glory because he was not, the man was not, uh, he was a regular man. So he had to live the sinless life, take the wrath, and be risen and be ascended to the right hand of God. So the God man reigns. Um, so a divine man lived and died and resurrected and rules the universe. So a man who ate fish rules the universe currently. He's fully God and fully man. He was given that glory to sit at the right hand. So God raised his son. Uh, but why is that? So look at verse 21. This is the ending that Peter gives. Um, and we're going to close here. Uh, he reads this. So that, so all this for the purpose of, so that your faith and hope are in God. So Jesus came to die for you. Yes, he came to satisfy God's law. Yes, to demonstrate God's glory. Yes, and to bring us to faith and hope in God. And see, the only way that Christ could die is to die in, to satisfy God's law that we have broken and Jesus, first of all, died for God to satisfy that. And once God is vindicated or justified or made to be shown as glorious, then that pours out into us. So God is satisfied and then we get what Jesus earned. Um, so the cross is not meant to show our value, uh, but to demonstrate God's value. Uh, the cross actually shows uh, how horrible our sin is and how much we don't deserve the gospel, but... Instead, what God does is he sends his son. So he could just sweep it all in the rug and say, no big deal, sin's not that bad, I'll cover it up. But again, that, that would be a bad judge. No one, that's, un, that's unjust, that's a bad judge. So he sweeps it uh, under the rug would be poor. So instead what he does is he satisfies his justice on, on his son in our place. So if you remember, we started this um, in the book of Jeremiah. Um, God exiled his people. And God did it, so God sent them, God purposed that. And in their exile, um, God sends them another, he, he's still speaking, and I want to read you a different section. Uh, so Jeremiah 29, but we're going to go to Jeremiah 31. 
and where God says, this is the new covenant. This is what I plan on doing. So here's, here's one of God's, this is God's plan. Let me read this section to you. A couple, it's two verses. Of Jeremiah 31, he says this. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each, each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So God made this new covenant that, that he promises with a new heart, uh, the law written on their hearts to understand, to love God, to know God exists, to, to see the glory of God. God says, and they shall know me. So the purpose of all of this is to know God. God's exile was to know God. Our exile on the earth is to know God, is to know Christ. And God sent his son so we might know him. And what's good is the God who keeps the covenant um, for us, he does not just send a prophet uh, like Jeremiah or a messenger like John the Baptist, but to us he sent his son. Jesus kept the covenant that we keep breaking. He kept it for us in our place. I mean, just as God should exile us because we have ruined his name, um, God exiles and forsakes his son in our place. He forgets, he leaves him behind. Jesus cries out, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? He does that in our place so that our faith and hope would be in God and that God would be known and made much of. And God forgives our sins. He put us in the bloodline of Christ. He shows us his glory. He does all this for his praise and his name. So during our exile as Christians on earth, uh, we are to lovingly fear God by treasuring the love of, or the life of Jesus created to us by the death of Jesus so that we might see and enjoy God both now and forever. That's what we're called to do as Christians. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to, we're going to end. God, I thank you uh, for how good you are to us. Um, God, you have... Um, been so gracious to us. God, we thank you for sending your son to uh, stand in our place, to uh, keep your law that we continue to break. Um, he kept it perfectly. Um, God, we thank you for um, counting us righteous because of what your son did. God, we thank you for the cross. Help us to understand that more. Help us to lovingly understand who you are and to fear you, um, but to know that in Christ we have no condemnation uh, to fear the wrath of you because your son took it in our place. And God, help us understand uh, our time here as exiles, that this is purposed, that this is not random. We're not here by accident, but we're here by your, your hand, by your doing. And you love us, and we thank you for um, adopting us as children. And it's your sons, let me pray. Amen.